The subject of integrity is the first of three headings that we're going to have this morning. Is there anyone here who has never let someone down by not going through with something that you said you would do? Could anyone put up their hand and say you've never done that, not once? We all have to admit, I think, that we know what it is ourselves to have given a commitment to do something and we haven't delivered on it. We all know that that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing, a good place to be in. We can see that, I'm sure. Of course, sometimes we would uh, jump to our own defence when that happens, wouldn't we? We are prone to want to do that. Um, We may not have carried out what we said, but we would say, that doesn't mean that I wasn't sincere about it at the time. I did mean what I said, but afterwards, what happened? Well, maybe we were just careless. Uh, Maybe we plain forgot. Maybe we just didn't give it the priority we should have. Maybe, actually, other more pressing needs came in and simply overwhelmed you. That happens. Maybe you discovered too late you didn't actually have the resources to be able to do what you said you were going to do. All kinds of things can happen, can't they? Well, accusations are being made against Paul within the Corinthian church. And those accusations against him are are far more than simply saying he said this but didn't do it probably started out like that but these things grow don't they now if it was the case that Paul had said something and hadn't done it well that wouldn't be good but what's being said is even worse and we can pick up the threads of the things that are being said in the Corinthian church by the things that Paul brings to them in his defense they were saying that Paul was a duplicitous man that he was two-faced Because when he said he would do something, he actually knew within himself, as he said it, he had no such intention. It was barefaced deception. That's the level to which the rumours about Paul have escalated within Corinth. And these letters he's written to us, They sound very fine on the surface, but you know, he's being a sneaky so-and-so. There's all kinds of hidden meanings and secret agendas within those letters. You've got to read between the lines to try and work out what it is he's really been saying. He thinks he's so smart by trying to make us think this when really he means that. All these kinds of things have been starting to circulate and almost certainly they didn't begin that way but left unchecked these things soon grow now in large part the whole thing was first prompted by a change to his announced travel plans something so simple really he talks at the end of 1 Corinthians about some future things that he hopes he will be able to do and how he'll be able to visit them on his journey he mentions it again here in verses 15 and 16 he was going to visit and he hoped to be able to do them good of course that's what Paul always wanted to do for churches to do them good 
he was making a journey and he hoped to be able to see them on the outward leg. And then as he was returning to call in a second time to Corinth, as he was on his way back to Judea. But circumstances have changed since then. Circumstances do change, don't they? Paul's been forced to reassess, to reconsider. If you've got your Bible open at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, just look at verse 23. To spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Things have changed. He's had to reconsider. Chapter 2 and verse 1. I determined this within myself. I would not come again to you in sorrow. We'll be considering that this evening. Things have changed. But this has been completely twisted around by the Corinthian believers. And all kinds of unfair, untrue, unkind accusations are being thrown around by Paul, by the Corinthian church about Paul. And it's not being helped by some other teachers who've come into the church who've had a very different kind of agenda and approach to ministry than that which Paul has had. Now, Christian friends, do you see the danger? Do you see how easy it is to fall into this trap the way the Corinthian church fell into it? Do you see how effortlessly we choose to be offended? We choose to take offence. None was meant, but I choose to take offence. And when there's something that happens, and I can use it to help convince myself that I'm not as bad as them, and they are obviously worse than me, how quickly we'll take hold of it. How prone we can be to be critical, to pull others down, to pounce on opportunities to think badly of someone rather than to give them the benefit of the doubt until you know the facts of the matter and to continue to think the good instead. In the world of athletics, you have high jump and triple jump and long jump. If there was a category for jumping to conclusions, most of us would be contenders for the gold medal. We would. Let's make sure we're learning the lessons that these pages of Scripture flag up for us as a local church. Now, Paul's great heart, we'll think a bit more about this this evening also, his great heart is to try and help the believers in the Corinthian church sort out these issues. And there's other things going on there as well, as we'll see tonight. And as Paul firstly brings a defense of these accusations that are being made against him as he brings a defense against the wrong thinking that's in the minds of many in this Corinthian church um, he brings this defense in three parts now they don't appear in a neatly numbered list in the text it would be nice if they did they're slightly intertwined within the verses that we just read before from verse 12 through to verse 23 to verse 22 but there are three clear aspects that Paul brings to the Corinthian church and they're things that we too ought to take on board very seriously and very earnestly as Christian 
people. Now, the first thing that he does, and it's that word that Pete was using earlier as he was leading us, he defends his integrity. We'll just read. Let me just start at verse 12. Our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, more abundantly toward you. We're not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end. He wants to defend his integrity. And we get an insight into this man who is an apostle. We see the kind of character that Paul had. Now, this is important for us today, the issue of Paul's character. It's important because he's an apostle. And it's it's important because he is the author of a good chunk of the New Testament scriptures. It's important we understand him. He's saying to the Corinthian church, you can trust me. And later we'll see what the basis is for that trust that we can have in Paul. We, like they, need reassurance that whenever we pick up this book... Whenever we open the Bible, whenever we read any of Paul's letters, the words that we're reading are trustworthy, are reliable, are infallible, and are inerrant. In this book, you will find unerring truth. It will never mislead you. It will never misguide you. It will never pull the wool over your eyes. This is what we believe the Bible to be. This is the only revelation about which we can say that. This book that God has preserved for us. And secondly, in Paul's integrity, we see an outstanding Christian example. And that should make us instantly respond by saying within our own hearts, that's how I should be, that's how I want to be, and... By the same means and grace that Paul had, I am determined to be too. He refers to his conduct both in the world and in the church and especially in the church. Simplicity, godly sincerity. Now, simplicity is used there in the sense of having no double standards. The opposite of duplicity. No hidden agenda. No facade with something very different lurking beneath the surface. Not Paul. What you see is who I am. And it's all done in an earnest zeal which is of God. Now he talks about godly sincerity. Note there. You see, being sincere in life is not enough. There are lots of sincere people out there, but they're lost in a mire of sinfulness, regardless of their sincerity. It needs to be godly sincerity. It must be a sincerity which is marked out by and accompanied by holiness and righteousness. Such a man was Paul. Now remember, he's saying all this to people amongst whom he lived 
for 18 months. That's plenty of time to really get to know someone. He's prompting them to recall for themselves what they observed in him. He reminds them that in all of his actions, he wasn't depending upon or drawing from human wisdom. Human wisdom can't produce that anyway. It was the grace of God at work in Paul. Surely that's what you saw. The grace of God at work in me, says Paul. He was a man of integrity. And as for my writings, where he talks about that in verse 13, the plain text is the plain meaning. What the words say is the meaning of the message. They're not riddles to be solved. They don't contain codes that need to be broken. What it seems to be saying, it is saying. And that's helpful for us too today, isn't it? The Bible is at heart a plain and simple book. Yes, there are some verses and some passages that are difficult. Here and there. But they stand out as being difficult because of how plain and simple the rest of it is. And do remember the basic principle in understanding the Bible is that when you come to those difficult texts, those hard to understand texts, you use the plain and simple text to interpret the difficult ones. You don't step outside the Bible and try and find the answer somewhere else. You just look at the plain, simple text of the Bible and allow that to interpret the difficult. Very important uh, function of understanding the Bible. Very important principle. And the, the planning of these trips and visits, that issue from verse 15, at the time I was making those plans, all my intentions were pure and sincere and were exactly as I imagined they would unfold. That was exactly what I intended to do. At no time was my mouth or pen saying one thing when in my heart and in my mind I was saying something else. Never, that hap- never did that happen, says Paul, not once. He defends his integrity. And the goal of all Christians needs to be that you too can do the same. It's a good question that Pete asked earlier. How can we be that kind of Christian man or woman? Well, we'll come to that right at the end because Paul tells us. He defends his integrity. The second thing he does is declare his good conscience. He declares his good conscience. He mentions conscience in verse 12, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves In verse 23 that we'll be looking at this evening, he says, I call God as witness against my soul. His conscience is clear. What is the conscience? The conscience has been described as our own internal tribunal. It's a faculty that we all possess, which stands in judgment of our own thoughts and words and actions. And having done so, It either accuses us 
you have a guilty conscience or it acquits you you have a clear conscience on this issue Paul says he has a clear conscience a few things to bear in mind about the conscience though first thing to remember is that the conscience is imperfect your conscience might clear you of something but God actually finds you guilty of it your conscience might charge you with something and actually God finds no fault because your conscience isn't perfect and as Christians in particular there's a few important things to remember about the conscience first Paul elsewhere teaches that for a Christian to act against their own conscience in other words your conscience is telling you that something is wrong but you do it anyway or your conscience is telling you that there's something that you should do and you kick against your own conscience and you don't do it the Bible says that for the Christian to play fast and loose with your own conscience like that is sin for you as a Christian to knowingly willfully do something that your conscience is telling you is wrong but you do it anyway can't be that way surely in the life of a believer and if you put another believer in a position where they sin against their conscience because you're putting pressure on them to do something a certain way and it's against their conscience to do it but you make them do it anyway you've sinned against them go home and read 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and Romans chapter 14 you'll find it all explained there by the apostle there's another important thing to remember about the conscience it can change your conscience can change is your conscience the same now as a Christian as it was before you were a Christian do you think the same way about all the issues now that you did be before our conscience changes with our exposure to truth our conscience changes as our knowledge and understanding of truth grows in a position of ignorance when we knew nothing of God and when we, we knew nothing of his word and we really didn't know better our conscience can be clear even when we're sinning but then as gospel light exposes God's truth to us and we see it as it is as we start to th see things as God sees them our conscience changes and can change on all kinds of issues and Paul's talking about his conscience and it's not unreasonable to ask the question how good is Paul's conscience how reliable is Paul's conscience well I want to suggest to you that in the Apostle Paul we have a man who's had a very significant exposure to truth in the way that most other Christians never will have and here is a man who has he's had a personal exposure to the Lord Jesus Christ which is absolutely unique and which actually gave him the qualification to be another apostle 
Here is a man who's being granted such a full understanding of God and his word. Here is a man whose conscience is probably one of the most finely tuned godly consciences that any man has ever had who's walked this planet except Christ. Here is a man with a good conscience. Here is a man with a reliable, trustworthy conscience. And again, at the end, we'll find out how it is that that is why he is like that. The other week, there was a story concerning the former footballer and now TV pundit, Mark Lawrenson. Or Lauro, as Dan Walker insists on calling him. Did you see the story about Mark Lawrenson? There was a GP, as in a doctor, sat at home watching telly. Mark Lawrenson was on the screen. And that doctor noticed a blemish on the side of his face, Mark Lawrenson's face. He thought, hmm, that doesn't look good. So he sent an email to the BBC and told them what he thought. He explained who he was. And Mark Lawrenson realising that this was coming from a bona fide doctor, took notice of that email, went and got it checked, and it was something that needed dealing with. And he's had it removed. Now, why did they take notice of the email? It was because of the qualifications of the man who sent it. It was because of the reliability and integrity of the person who wrote the email. It wasn't some quack. Now, in a similar way, it's because it's Paul who is saying that his conscience is clear. The very fact that it's his conscience that's under consideration, that's significant because of who the man is and what Christ has done in him. I've gone over, I've gone over all these things again, says Paul. I've examined them. We can be certain that he has. I've examined them before my God. We can be certain that he has. I've examined them in the light of all the truth that I know and understand. And we can be certain that he has. My own conscience has stood in judgment over me. And it's acquitted me. I have a good conscience. The Christian conscience, you see, can be a powerful asset when the Christian mind has been properly trained and schooled in the things of Christ and by God's word. And your conscience can grow and develop, become a godly, Christ-like conscience, a holy conscience, a pure conscience, when this mind is in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's the work of the Word and God's Spirit in our lives. So Paul could defend his conscience. And then thirdly, he defends his confidence. His confidence. Verse 12 begins, for our boasting. 
Are you surprised to discover that Paul talks about boasting? In fact, throughout this letter, he talks about boasting 25 times. Surely, boasting is not a very Christian trait. Well, he uses the word here in the context of declaring those things that he has confidence in. Declaring the things he has confidence in. Now, of course, worldly boasting is based upon the fact that I'm letting you know that I've got confidence in me. My confidence is in me. Worldly boasting is trumpeting your own supposed greatness and goodness. But that's not what Paul means here. All the things in which Paul boasts are works of God. All of them. He's confident in the testimony of his own conscience. Verse 12. He's confident of what will transpire when Christ returns. Verse 14. That's the meaning of the phrase, the day of the Lord Jesus, when Christ comes again. When Christ returns as judge, when Christ returns and gathers his church, I am confident of where you will stand before Christ. And I am confident that your standing there will vindicate my ministry amongst you. That's my boast. They're the things that I'm declaring my confidence to be in. You will stand on that day confident in me as a minister of the gospel. Because I've preached to you the one true gospel. I've made known to you the one true saviour. And Paul's confidence lies in the fact of his union with Christ in God. Because after speaking about himself, at verse 18, he changes the topic. And he says, as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden now his focus is Christ. Now why is he saying all this about Christ Look at verse 21. He who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God who has sealed us by his Holy Spirit. See, the Apostle Paul now is throwing all the light upon Christ and the work that God has done. Because that is the source of it all. All the confidence that Paul has in his position as he defends himself is the fact of his union with Christ in God. He's assuring the Christians in Corinth that there is no double-mindedness in him just as there is no double-mindedness in God. With him, yes is yes and no is no. Paul is saying, I never say yes, but I'm shaking my head as I say it. And I never say no, but I'm nodding my head as I say it. And Paul roots it all firmly into Christ. Because this is how Christ is. This is who Christ is. And it's he who is at work in me. And it's he who is at work in you. This is the work of God who has established all of these things in me. Christ is the truth. Christ is impeccably honest. Christ is the epitome 
of integrity. With him, yes is yes, no is no. In fact, says Paul, all the promises that God has ever ever given rest upon the integrity of Christ. All the promises that God has ever given are fulfilled in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, for that promise to stand fast depends upon the integrity of Christ. That's a great thing to know, isn't it? As early as Genesis chapter 3, who would be the seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent's head? Christ. And did he? Yes. How would it be that Abraham would have descendants numerous as the stars in the sky? Christ. Because all those descendants are his sheep in his fold. The members of his church. And he knows each one and calls each one by name. Who is Isaiah's child who would be born? The son who will be given the names Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Christ? Who is it who will bear our griefs and carry our sorrows and be wounded for our transgressions and heal us by his stripes? Christ? Who will be David's seed after him, whose kingdom will last forever? Christ. I've barely scratched the surface, but do you get the message? All established in Christ. All dependent upon the integrity of Christ in their fulfillment. And Paul is confident to say, in all things they are yes in Christ. Now look, says Paul, look and remember, this same God, this same God, what has he done in these closing verses that we're looking at this morning? From verse 20 through to 22. God established Paul with these Christian believers in Christ. God did it. God established them as believers. God established them as an assembly of saints. Each one anointed by God. What does that mean? Each one set apart and identified as belonging now to God. God has been doing all of this. And we looked at this. Pete alluded to this earlier. In Ephesians chapter 1 on Wednesday. The Holy Spirit. His such important role sealing us establishing God's unique and personal ownership of us as a down payment which guarantees the full and final possession there aren't that many situations today I suppose where you have to put down a deposit for something it used to be much more common years ago Maybe for big purchases that you still make, like buying a house or buying a car, you might put down a deposit, I'll come back with the rest. Maybe if you're entering into a rental agreement for a flat or your student digs, a month's payment up front, please, and it's yours. 
It used to be a lot more common in the past, but it still exists. You put an initial payment down. And that down payment secures your title to it. It secures that item for you. And the Holy Spirit does that in the life of every believer. You are Christ's now. You belong to God now. The Holy Spirit does that. And he secures us in Christ for the day of Christ's return. And on that day, Christ will take us in full and final possession, as it were, as he takes us to be with himself forever. Now, are we any less his at the moment? No. Because the Holy Spirit has sealed you. You're his. And because all the promises in Christ are yes, we have absolute assurance and confidence that Christ will return and he will do what he's promised to do. And you who are believers, you all will one day be in that place where Christ has taken full and final possession of you and gathered his entire church to himself for all eternity. What a glorious day that's going to be. And herein lies the source of all Paul's boasting. Herein lies the source of all Paul's integrity. Herein lies the source of his good conscience. Herein lies the source of his confidence. All these things he's been using in his defense, they're not of himself, they're not from himself. They have not come from within himself. This has been the work of God in me and in you, says Paul. And this is the nature of that God who's been at work. And this is the nature that God is establishing in each one who is his. As in increasing measure we are conformed unto his likeness. God has established us in Christ. What a great phrase that is. God has established us in Christ. You see, that lies at the heart of Paul's confidence. That lies behind who Paul is. He would say somewhere else, by God's grace, I now am who I am. Because of what God has done. God has established us in Christ. Remembering that one truth. Maintaining this right perspective. Viewing one another through this Christ-like lens. Will spare us from all kinds of problems and arguments and divisions. God has established us in Christ. It's his work. It's been his doing. That truth lies at the very heart of what we're about to do in a moment as we share around the Lord's table. 
it's a time when together as God's people, we remember, we declare, God has established us in Christ by means of Christ's suffering through his sacrificial death as our substitute by means of him being the ransom for our sins which are paid for in full and because he is risen forevermore and is a living Lord and Saviour we have been established in Christ. Paul knows that if these Corinthian believers will make that their focus, if they will put this one thought right at the front of everything, in the midst of all of their problems, all the turmoil that's going on within the church, if every believer in that fellowship will remember this one truth, God has established us in Christ. That changes everything.